on maynard.com.au. On the line here via Skype with a little bit of fan going in the background, I have John Blaxland, the author of ASIO, The Protest Years. That's volume two of the official history of ASIO. John, welcome. Thanks, Maynard. Great to be with you. A bit about John. John Blaxland is a senior fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre in the National University and writes about military history, intelligence, security, Asia-Pacific affairs, but more importantly, he's a former director of Joint Intelligence Operations at Headquarters, Joint Operations Command, and you'll have to tell us what that is, and the editor of the East Timor Intervention and the author of the Australian Army from Whitlam to Howard and the Strategic Cousins. Tell us, what is the Joint Intelligence Operations at Headquarters? What is that, John? That involved supervising Australia's military intelligence operation in support of our efforts around the world in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and at the time East Timor. Wherever the uh, Australian Defence Forces deployed troops, I was in charge of supervising the intelligence support for all those operations. And that meant basically making sure that we gave them as much understanding about their environment, broadly defined, as possible. I guess you must have really good encryption on your laptop. <laughs> You'd have to have... <laughs> it's a good point. A lot of issues about cybersecurity these days. It's hard to stay ahead of the game, I must admit. What is our real-time intelligence like compared to someone who's really got a lot of technology like the Americans? We are close allies of the United States for very good reasons, that being one of them. The intelligence ties with the United States are long, broad and deep. The intelligence arrangements for our deployments around the world uh, leverage off the connections with the United States. There's no question about that. When you write a book like this, you being part of, well, part of the of the military-industrial complex, so to speak, is that, do you know how to write this so you wouldn't have to get stuff cut out of the book, or did you have to get stuff taken out by them at a later date? Interesting. <laughs> Your point about the military-industrial complex is not much of an industry here in Australia. <laughs> it's three people in a kelpie. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's, uh, there's certainly, you know, an, an aspiration for an industrial complex here, and I don't know if we've quite reached that stage. We're a bit short of that here, and there's quite a lot of controversy about that. But in terms of how we went about writing this volume, I was given unfettered access to the files. So I was initiated to the arcane ways of uh, top-secret intelligence, and, and then I, they said, right, hey, John, what files do you want to look at? And I looked down the list of files with my research assistant, who's actually co-author of Volume 3 now, Dr. Rhys Crawley. And we went through and picked out files. We thought, now I want to look at that one. That sounds pretty juicy. And we went through them. And having pretty well sketched out a sense of where we wanted to look because of what the work that David Horner had done with Volume 1, which is the spy catches, which came out a year ago now, we had a sense of what needed to be done for Volume 2 and what needed to be done for the one that's coming out next year, Volume 3. But I found Volume 2 much more interesting. I found Volume 1 a little bit dry, not because of the way it was written, but because the experiences in Volume 2 seem to be a bit more relatable. Maynard, the thing is with Volume 2, it's it's kind of in our uh, lifetime, or at least in the story, the lifetime of our immediate parents, and it's the stories that are familiar. I mean, even just last month, you know, the 40th anniversary of the dismissal of the Whitlam government, it's got a feel of being pretty contemporary. And the whole thing about this book is, while it's it's a generation ago in a sense, but it's actually got a lot of resonance today. So you're right, there's aspects to this volume, and I'm very grateful. David Horner very kindly said, John, I'm going to do volume one, you do volume two. And I said, great, this is such a great <laughs> I'm up to page 204, I'm up to chapter eight. But I I have jumped ahead a little bit. And by the way, I think I've probably read more of this than most people that interview you. (laughs) 
<laughs> some people just don't really bother reading authors' books, and I think it's good to read what you're interviewing someone about. Page 445 is where we get the connection between perhaps the CIA and the Whitlam government there. Did you come down on giving any opinion on whether they were tipping the bucket or whether they were to blame for the whole thing or anything like that, like some people claim? There's a great line that I wish I'd come across before I'd uh, finished writing. In one of my interviews earlier on, there's a line from Gord Vidal. Uh, he reportedly said, you haven't begun to touch the tip of the ice cube when it comes to the conspiracies. People read into what happened and things did happen. That's the thing. What, what is interesting is that the American intelligence was, was talking to ASIO and applying pressure and that seemed to imply a lot more than actually happened. And what it is, from what I've been able to establish, is what you see is what you got. There isn't any substance that I've been able to get my hands on to substantiate any of the deeper conspiracies, despite the best wishes of those who would love to see them be proven to be true. The evidence isn't there. But wouldn't it be the job of the espionage agencies to successfully hide that evidence? <laughs> I would have thought so, except one of the most compelling pieces of evidence was when I in interviewed John Malcolm Fraser, the recently passed away former Prime Minister of Australia. And he was about to publish a book called Dangerous Allies, which was really pretty damning of the Americans, right? He, I challenged him on the conspiracy theories, and his line in response was synced and to the point. It was crap, total crap. Here was this man who has clearly cut, turned around and moved along to the left of the political spectrum, who has in the past been a great defender of the American alliance, but in his dotage came to the point of, of basically spurning them but when I interviewed him, he would not go to where you suggest. That, to me, that was, apart from all the evidence, other points I, I, I discuss in the book, as I try and look at the various factors and try and give some weight to the credence of each component, that, to me, would really stood out as you know, a really compelling point. ASIO, Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, they're just one of many that we have, but they'd be the best known one, wouldn't they? I'm a bit of a fan of the Signals Intelligence Unit because they don't get a lot of press. They haven't got that much press, although they've got a little bit more in the last couple of years, thanks to people like Edward Snowden. But <laughs> Are they a purely military organisation or would they work with ASIO? How does it all work? Because we've been told, you know, before 9-11, the Americans didn't have all the agencies that didn't talk to each other. Do ours talk to each other or were they a bit jealous of their information and they don't want to lose it? It's an interesting observation there, Maynard, because while what happened in the United States uh, in uh, after 9-11 that, that experience was quite cathartic for the US intelligence architecture. But we had had a cathartic experience in the period I talk about in volume two and that we talk about in volume three, which is coming out next year. And so there were significant reforms in the Australian intelligence community's architecture, if you can call it that, as a consequence of Justice Robert Marsden Hope and the two royal commissions that he chaired in the mid-70s and in the early to mid-1980s. They brought about fundamental reform to Australia's approach to collecting and analysing intelligence. So when 9-11 comes around, Australia is actually much better placed. Now, it's not perfect and there's lots of issues and, you know, there's all sorts of inquiries that happened after 9-11 because and after 2003 as we know you know after the Iraq war so there's always issues to be addressed but fundamentally the architecture that the mechanisms for oversight that are still subject to criticism and still could be refined there's no question there's still always room for improvement 
but were fundamentally pretty well on the mark in terms of providing the Australian people and the Australian government some confidence that this is not some kind of runaway beast that's just operating to its own agenda, which is not quite what you could say in the mid-1960s, I might add. In January 1974, there were only seven telephone warrants currently being run by ASIO. Only seven. That seems rather few. Yeah, well, this is at the peak of Lionel Murphy's reign as Attorney General, and he came with a strong civil libertarian streak, strong scepticism at ASIO's focus on communism and on what was the extremism of the day, the Communist Party, the splinter groups, the Trotskyites. Were they a little bit too paranoid about that? Was it too much of a hangover from the Menzies period? Well, it's a bit of both. That's the thing, Maynard. Life is always just a little bit greyer than we'd like it to be. We always like simple, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, black, white. But there's so many shades of grey. And, and what I try and do is capture some of that, uh, you know, some of the complexity of the story in, in this account. Because there's actually some pretty good people, genuinely committed people inside the organisation trying to do the right thing. And yet the organisation is getting some pretty opaque guidance from ministers who are a little bit hands off in terms of how they manage their responsibilities. Of course, the 1960s into the early 1970s, there's a lot of change in society. This is the whole thing about being called the protest years. Australian society is getting chopped around, topsy-turvy. So we have the protest from the anti-Vietnam War. We have the, the baby boomer generation coming of age. And we have this old Cold War thinking of the 1950s really not keeping up with the times in the mid to late 1960s. The thing you keep mentioning in volume two, uh, as the author John Paxson, the word comes up a lot, authority. Asia seemed to be concerned that people didn't have respect for authority, and they even went so far as to help make a TV show with Crawford Productions to help people respect authority. Yeah, that's right. It's an interesting aspect of the story, isn't it? The Crawford production with Cosmic, the central office, for security and military intelligence coordination. Something like trying to do a little bit of Maxwell Smart doesn't quite work because for the kind of work that ASIO is doing, a lot of it's pretty mundane and it's certainly not about going around cops and robbers. Well, there's another thing that's missing from the book too and I imagine if I was reading a CIA brief from the same period, there'd be assassinations going on, there'd be killing people, there'd be agents going out there and doing things quite unsavoury and I don't see that in the book and I'm just imagining if that's something that isn't spoken about or whether we just didn't do that as much. You know, this is one of the great things about the Australian system. While we can cast aspersions and it's a good thing to do, to be critical and to not accept things at face value, the bottom line is that the Australian system is a really pretty refined one. We don't do that kind of stuff. So this idea that there are people out there, you know, performing James Bond kind of, actually going around killing people or operating outside of the law. Now, they're skirting the edges there. They're certainly pushing the envelope in terms of the surveillance, the monitoring actions that they're doing. But no one's getting topped. No one's getting knocked off at the hands of ASIO. Some people do die, though, as a consequence of falling into the space of extremist behaviour and then falling between the cracks of communist authorities back in countries like Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union and their proxies in Australia and elsewhere. So it's a pretty complicated story. Even back then, organisations like the NSA, the FBI, maybe the Signals Intelligence Unit, what you do is you're getting really good intelligence on people so that you could probably blackmail them very easily. That's not that's not the role of ASIO. Uh, ASIO's role is, I mean, the thing is, what happens in the 1950s, 1956, the ASIO Act comes out and pretty clearly defines 
what ASIO is allowed to do. And what they find is that probably, and this is what Justice Hope finds out, is they probably need some more refinement, but not, not nearly where you think it might be in terms of the darker end of the spectrum in, top of the, in terms of the popular imagination. There's certainly some aspects of the story that are not altogether savoury, but it's not as bleak as perhaps someone with a fertile imagination or a reader of Le Carre novels might might actually come to think. Your book covers the famous raid on ASIO, pretty much done at the get-go from the Whitlam government getting in. I imagine that would not have endeared them to any security organisation as a government. No, well, this is the start of this existential crisis for ASIO. You've got an organisation that has for the majority of its life, I mean, it was founded under Ben Chifley for the first year, under the Labor government uh, set it up. But for the majority of its life, for 23 years after that, it's been supporting a Liberal country party government, the Conservatives. And then you have the Labor Party winning, Gough Whitlam wins office, Lionel Murphy gets to be the Attorney General. And, you know, you can hear the sucking of teeth as the officials inside Asia, let alone the, uh, you know, international partners in the UK and the US and such etc worrying about what's going to happen and the asia raid this is when lionel murphy worried that there's some croatian extremist information that's been hidden from him which there isn't but he thought there was he goes down to asio headquarters to find out for himself and he goes in calls in the federal police locks down asio headquarters and goes in searching for the files himself it's like geez mate it's pretty extreme action anyway there's nothing there uh, of any consequence and he gets to he sees the file they pull out the file that he thinks he wants to see and of course it's there as he thought it would be but it actually doesn't say anything more than the bit that gave him the hint that there might be something of concern and all it is is this misinterpretation of the data and i explain that in the chapter at some length but what happens is others look at inside asio and beyond think wow this guy's prepared to go into his own organization call the cops in and ask to look at any file that's unprecedented no attorney general had ever thought about doing something like that so it's, it puts the cat amongst the pigeons and there's great fear about well, what, what's he going to do next you know what else is he going to is he going to dismantle the organization and of course what happens eventually he and Whitlam both recognize Lionel Murphy and Gough Whitlam both recognize that really you've got to have an organization like ASIO they may not like some of the things ASIO was doing but essentially every nation's got to have something that performs that kind of security function. One of the ones where they really got their act together was in Operation Whip that was against the protest protest movements and various other people in 1969 through to 71. You want to describe what they were doing then? They really got their act together as far as uh, collecting intelligence with that, didn't they? This is what the government wanted them to do. There was the Vietnam War protest movement. It was getting out of hand. It was growing in momentum. It was growing in political toxicity, if you like. It was really worrying the government. So they were onto Asia. said, you've got to find out, keep us abreast, keep us informed as to what's going to happen next so we can, you know, try and minimise the, the fallout. This is kind of where Asia is in a space where it really is part of this is a police role. There was a security intelligence aspect to it but it was hard to actually tease apart the police role from the intelligence role and over time the lines really started to get blurred and over time you know initially you see very early on in the protests in the early early 60s early to mid 1960s the communist party is playing a role but over time that this gets bigger than the communist party this actually this is something where australians start to really feel pretty agitated about broadly speaking joe average in the middle of class you know pretty centrist sort of people saying no we don't want this anymore and they're going out and joining the protests 
where do you draw the line? And this is this is one of the complete, you know aspects of how over time this creeping expansion led to this challenge for Asia and an existential crisis that manifested most clearly in the change of government with Gough Whitlam and Lionel Murphy deciding to essentially change the rules. It's a big moment. In this. I'm looking at some of the things that they were surveilling there, and one of them is under the heading of radical training camps. There's the Socialist Youth Alliance at Warburton. They don't read like a great threat. No, you wouldn't have thought so, would you? But this is in the 60s and early 70s, and the world looked different back then, Maynard. This was still the Cold War. As much as there was talk of detente, the Russians and the Soviets and the Soviet bloc satellite countries of Eastern Europe were pretty actively involved in espionage. And there was some sense that as small as they were, a lot of these extremist elements still were spouting the rhetoric of revolution. And so, you know, how much of this do you take at face value? Do you believe them when they say they want a revolution? Or do you just think I'll blow them off as a joke or a bad joke? And this is the space that ASIO is operating in. Well, where do you discern the, the difference? And if you've been an old Cold War warrior from the 1950s, of course, everything you say, you've got to take it at face value. And of course, well, maybe maybe there's a nuance there that you need to pick up on too. Reading this, how much can we take this through to today? How much can we extrapolate from the way they were behaving back then in the 60s and 70s? Because I'm a very paranoid person. I'm sure I've got a very thick file that they've got about me that isn't very interesting. But look, I, <laughs> I can save them a lot of time. I'm pretty much into everything except cigarettes and gambling. Everything else I'm open to. If they're trying to leverage something, that's the way to get me. Should, I, should I be paranoid? You're a guy who's seen people's files. Should I be paranoid? There's no reason to be paranoid because it's only the whole world that's against you. <laughs> yeah, well, that narrows it down a bit. I'm being a bit flippant there. But, you know, we all love a conspiracy theory. Look, I think some people are going to be a little bit disappointed because I kind of tear a couple of them apart. There's still hope there for some, though, and that's the whole point of it. Volume 3 is yet to come out, and there's a few that I address in Volume 3. So don't despair. One of the problems they had when they were doing their surveillance, which you tend to point out, is that they didn't change their cars often enough during the 60s and 70s. Yes, that's right. It became pretty obvious. The Soviets, they had a pretty good idea who was tailing them. And of course, it didn't help that it was the same kind of young, strapping, blue-eyed, white Australian that happened to fit the profile of who was suitable to be employed in the surveillance teams. It wasn't that long before the Soviets were across it. The, the other side of the story is, of course, that because they were on top of the Soviets, it actually made it pretty hard for the Soviets to operate of surveillance. So while they making fun of the surveillance teams, sometimes the, the Soviets would turn around and wave at the guys tailing them. But that did actually, there is a positive side to that story for from Asia's perspective, and that is that while that's happening, that KGB officer, that Soviet officer, was not meeting with an illegal agent or someone like that somewhere around Canberra or Sydney or Melbourne. With a lot of government departments, of course, it's always good for them to in increase their reach and increase their budget. Does ASIO then and now have to be a bit opportunistic to a certain extent when something bad happens and going, oh, well, we could use this extra stuff that they'd wanted anyway and didn't have an excuse to put forward before? It's a very interesting point, um, Anna, because Charles Spry, Brigadier Charles, Sir Charles Spry, who's the second head of ASIO, but he's head for the longest time, He's a World War II vet. Was it particularly a very, very political appointment? No, not so much. He was formerly the director of military intelligence, so he came from the right kind of background to do the job. He was a conservative figure, but not actively politically in, in that sense. But what happened was that this guy had a very frugal war footing type mindset, you know, with a fourth arm of defence, 
the Army Navy Air Force, then ASIO. And so he had this mindset that was like, we're at war, we're frugal-minded, we've got a can-do attitude. Well, you can sustain that for a while, but after 15 to 20 years, the wheels start creaking a little bit. And the situation was the task that ASIO had to face in terms of countering espionage and and potential for so-called subversion grew as time went by and diversified. And the range of targets and, and potential issues multiplied as Australian society grew more complicated and, and included more and more migrant groups, more and more splinter extremist groups. But Spry just couldn't bring himself to say, you know what, I actually need a lot more staff to do this. He was like, no, no, we're going to do it. You know, we're going to just make people work harder. And so what happens is ASIO in the 60s and early 70s is actually starting to creak because people are just jaded. They're doing too much. They're not getting enough training. They're not paid enough. And there's not enough of them to do the job properly. It's, it's ironic. You know, you'd think that, oh, you know, it's, it's all just a bit of a have, John. You're pulling our leg. But at that stage, this is an organization of only a couple hundred people. And they're really being asked to do a lot with very little. This is something Lionel Murphy notices. And he, he kind of hits up Peter Barber, who's the, the director general at the time. He says, well, why don't you ask for more money? Just it, Asia hadn't thought of that. It's like you don't go asking for more money. You just make do with what you've got and of course if all you're going to do is make do with what you've got to do with what you've got you start making mistakes and that's one of the things that gets captured in the story just as hope he picks up on this and says look you can't do this on a shoestring if you want to do this properly and according to ethically and appropriately for this the expectations of the australian community you've actually got to pay some money it's not it's not going to happen on a shoestring what was the other organisation that ASIO was kind of competing with, the ASIS? Were they a military one or were they another civilian arm? Oh, no. no it's, there were some military people in, at the foundation and its roots in the Second World War were in the special intelligence operations field. So the commando, the special intelligence raid into what was then Netherlands, East Indies, now Indonesia. That's the kind of original circle of members that joined that group. But it's quite distinct from ASIO. And it's not the focus of this book, but obviously that is the, you know, the other major organisation, which, of course, in the 60s and 70s was very hush-hush. Because you were mentioning that even members of ASIO didn't know that ASIS existed. Well, you weren't allowed to unless you were, you know, you, unless you were briefed in. And this is one of the other things. It's interesting, you know, talking to some of the old ASIO hands who've read the book now and they say, oh, I didn't realise all that was going on because they all had their little silos of information and they were operating in their own little space not necessarily aware of the broader picture. And so I'm, I'm very, very privileged to have had the access to all of this material to then be able to step back and sort of get a broader amphitheatre-like span of what on earth was happening in this decade and a half of fascinating Australian history. As former Director of Joint Intelligence Operations, how do you make sure that people aren't duplicating or competing with each other and wasting time as far as intelligence gathering goes? How do you do that? Australia has now... Uh, interagency coordination mechanisms that are all, are all about making sure that each organisation has a de-conflicted set of task priorities. It, it's pretty sophisticated and it's pretty mature. It's been going for a couple of decades and it's certainly been refined in the post 9-11 period. Actually for Australia, it was not East Timor really was a very significant moment in terms of really focusing our thinking on about how to do this properly and how to coordinate and de-conflict each other's responsibilities. You know, there's always room for, for improvement and there's points for criticism and there's things that people start up along the way. 
but broadly speaking, it's a pretty robust uh, arrangement. Every decade seems to have a little bit of a blind spot. Some people say that the Americans at the moment have got a bit of a blind spot with right-wing terrorism. There was a bit of a blind spot, obviously, in the period you were looking at during the Vietnam War, where they were more interested in subversives and there was other things they might have missed because they weren't looking as closely? There's a whole chapter in here on right-wing extremism. Uh, because there is a sense, particularly focusing on the Croatians, but not just the Croatian extremists, there is an accusation that Asia was just fixated on the left. And there's no question that there were attorneys general along the way who really didn't care about the right that much. But to be fair to Asia, they did try and cover them, but they did find like the Nazi party and the Australian legal rights and people like that pretty fringe groups in terms of realistically what these people were able to do in terms of a threat to society was was assessed as pretty marginal. And so, well, what do you do? And you've got a proliferation of Trotskyites and the Socialist Party of Australia aligned to the, the Maoists in China, the Communist Party of Australia, Marxist-Leninists that were still getting funded by the Soviet Union. You've got all sorts of groups like that, groups that were espousing revolution, essentially. Yeah, that's the bottom line. This is what worried ASIO. While the rhetoric of revolution continued to be espoused, Asia felt they had to monitor it. Of course, what happened over time is you realise that there's capability and intent. And intent, okay, maybe to a certain extent, but capability, really, these people can barely tie their shoelaces. I mean, without wishing to be too disparaging. In terms of a threat to Australia, they're pretty fractional. Eventually, Asia comes around and recognises that while the rhetoric is pretty severe, the numbers in these groups are tiny and their real reach and influence is pretty peripheral. John Blacksland, I love asking this of an author. It's a 500-page read here. Is there one section of the book you're particularly proud of? That's a good question, Maynard. But there's one bit where you go, hey, shit, I did a good job at that. My sense is that this is a story about Australia through the prism of ASIO during the, probably one of the most turbulent decades in Australian history. And I try and provide that fresh perspective on this important decade and a bit for Australia. And I think if you, there's one section, you know, the introductions and conclusions and my reflections on the chapters. This isn't just a summation. What does this mean for Australia? Are we to be too concerned that it's got official on the front of it? Because a lot of people will go, oh, official, it's a whitewash, it's Big Brother's version of it. Yeah, because people will say that. You're absolutely right, mate. And, and the thing is that it was up for debate, just what, what it was called. And we went for official. That decision was made around me. I guess like it does what it says on the box, too, if you've got that written on it. This project was funded by ASIO. They paid ANU to do it. They hired David Horner and myself and Reese Crawley to do this three-volume project. So in that sense, it's official in that it's funded by ASIO, by the government, to do this. But they have not written it. This is not them saying it. This is me speaking and, you know, a lot of people have cringed and got pretty uncomfortable about things we've said in the volumes, in David's volume, but particularly this one, I suspect there'll be a bit of that in volume three coming up too, because I haven't pulled my punches. If I see a wart, I, see, I call a wart. On balance, that's probably healthy. Did we ever have the kind of money to do the things the CIA was doing, like putting listening devices into cats and doing some of the Maxwell Smart intelligence kind of stuff? Did we develop any interesting things like that, gadgets? There's a few gadgets in the book. 
There's lots of gadgets we use, let me assure you. Bordering on the Maxwell Smartian, the technology is pretty well out of date, so I could talk about some of it in a reasonable amount of detail. As someone with intelligence experience, back in the day then they had 10 cent coins and they had people ringing in from phone booths. Now you've got all sorts of information coming in from internet usage right through to metadata on telephone calls. Will this make it any easier or would that do with the amount of data just cloud a quick choice sometimes, a quick decision? That's a very good question, man. Because what a person's doing online doesn't always reflect what they're really like. That's true. And picking out the spurious information from the genuinely concerning information is very difficult when you're absolutely deluged with data. From my sense, there is so much data out there, there's no way intelligence analysts can do anything but focus on the top priorities. And, And even then, they barely touch the sides on their top priorities. Intelligence Analysis today, reflecting the experience back then, is very much, I think, informed by this sense of prioritisation. You don't waste your time with the with the dross or the or the trimmings. You you focus on the only only the top priorities. See, because it's not enough people and there's not enough time in the day to get through it all. This is a bit, little bit disappointing for those who might think that they're more important than they that might might otherwise be. I mean, it's a big hope of a lot of people. Philip Adams had one at the ABC, and he doesn't strike me as being a bomb maker. People like knowing that they were monitored, you know. There's kind of there's this reverse kind of thrill to know that they're important enough. Back then it was a lot hard harder. You had to get someone with binoculars close enough. It meant that they were investing time and effort on you because you were clearly important. Of course, there are a lot of people being monitored and, and a lot of the files are, you know, that make the point in the book, a lot of them are pretty superficial, newspaper clippings and hearsay and really not terribly consequential information. But it's there because people were worried either, you know, they're associated with the Communist Party or the Trotskyists or, or some other faction. And therefore, we better collect this information in case they turn out to be the ringleader who overturns the state, overthrows the state. Well, it turned out to be Gough Whitlam. They should have had a file on him. <laughs> well, you know, it's a really interesting thing. He's the right, you know, he's part of the right, the Labour Party right. He wasn't the left. There's a lot of people that get quite a run in the book. I'd recommend it, even if you think it's part of a government conspiracy, all the more reason to read it, I would say. John Blacksland, the author of The Official History of ASIO, 1963 through to 75. And with volume three, how close to the present day are you going to come? The volume three is the Fraser and the Hawk years through to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So it's kind of the end of the Cold War, so late in the 89. John Blacksland, I've asked you about how proud you are. At what point were you knee deep in files and reading things and thinking, oh, really? Did I really put myself up for this? At what point did you ever think that? Because most authors do go, oh, really? What have I done here? Yeah, at about the third year mark, uh, <laughs> I still had about eight chapters to write, wading through my umpteenth set of files. Occasionally it crossed my mind, but I knew that this is such an exciting, fresh take on Australian history. I knew it was a fantastic opportunity that we had to get right. John Blacksland, thank you for your time today. And I'll be getting the name of the encryption you use because I might uh, might need that really once I've finished editing this. Thank you for your time today. You've been great. Great, Mina. Thanks very much, mate. On maynard.com.au.